Please turn with me now in your Bibles to 2 Peter, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, where we'll look at this morning the second half of verse 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we pray now for the ministry of your Holy Spirit to come and attend the preaching of the Word. O Lord, this congregation does not need to hear the wisdom of a man. We need to hear the voice of God. And so we pray that your Spirit would come, and through the preaching of the Word, we would hear God speaking to us. We pray with your servant of old that you would speak now, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Well, as Peter writes to these young Christians in Asia Minor, to help strengthen them against the false teachers that have infiltrated their ranks, he begins with this fairly simple, fairly standard introduction in which he sets the terms and establishes the themes of the letter that will follow. As we noted when we looked at the first half of this verse last week, often when we come to the epistles, these little greetings at the beginning are often verses that we are tempted to skip over. We know what they say. They are roughly all all say the same thing, a personal introduction by the author, an identification of the recipients, and an initial uh, blessing. And we often inadvertently just skip over that as we read to get to the first major division that our Bible editors have designated for us. But as we began to look at last week, these introductions are actually uh, rich and full portions of Scripture, packed full and really containing the vital parameters for understanding the rest of the letter properly. And so, while the first half of verse 1 might, at first reading, only seem to contain Peter's self-identification, the ancient equivalent to our yours sincerely, it is in reality a definitive statement that establishes Peter's relationship to this congregation, especially as he relates to them over and against the false teachers that have come to infiltrate these congregations. Now, we won't go over it all again, but you remember from last week these two vital markers that Peter uses when he calls himself an apostle and a servant. An apostle, a title that identified him as one who had been specially commissioned by Christ and sent by him to proclaim the wonders specifically of the resurrection. But you remember we said that the chief qualification of an apostle was that he was an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ. And why was that so important? It was because it was what uniquely qualified them 
as these central figures in this pivotal moment of redemptive history called by God to usher the church into life in the new covenant era. Remember, and I think we can sometimes forget this, we are, we're so far away from the events and, and so used to being New Testament people, but remember that what happened in the years following Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension was absolutely epoch-shifting for the people of God. Since the fall, the gospel hope of the people of God was laser-focused on the coming of the promised Redeemer. All of the Old Testament describing, prefiguring, anticipating, promising the coming Redeemer who would destroy evil and establish a glorious kingdom of righteousness. That's where the hearts of God's people have been all the way through the Old Testament. That was the basis of their saving hope. Not, you understand, not the sacrifices in the temple, but the true and greater sacrifice that would come to finally and fully take away sin and reconcile a sinful people to a holy God. Not in the intercessory works of the priesthood, but the true and greater intercessory work of the Redeemer who would be a true God-man and truly bring the people of God back beyond that flaming altar and into the presence of God for thousands of years. The hope of the people of God was future, looking forward to this grand fulfillment of all the cumulative promises of God but with not just the appearance of Christ, but specifically with the resurrection of Christ, everything changed in a moment. Christ had come proclaiming the kingdom of heaven was now at hand in His appearance. John the Baptist had stood as the Elijah who was to come and proclaimed that in Christ, here was the great Redeemer for whom they had been waiting. You remember he called him the the, the Lamb of God who had come to take away the sin of the world. When Jesus stood in his home synagogue in Nazareth, he stood, and you remember, he preached from Isaiah chapter 61. And Luke tells us that Jesus unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Luke says he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It was the great declaration that the day of anticipation had come, and that in Jesus, evil was being overturned, and that in Jesus, the kingdom of life was being established. But of course, all of this appeared to be for naught as Jesus died on the cross at Calvary. 
the disciples dismayed, saying with a sigh on the road to Emmaus, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. But not now. He's dead and he's buried. The disciples afraid, locked in an upper room for fear of retribution from the Jews. Christ now gone, the shepherd struck, and the sheep afraid and vulnerable. But with the resurrection of Jesus from the grave, it suddenly became manifest that what he had done, what he had achieved, was in reality far greater than anything the Old Testament saints could ever have anticipated certainly far greater than anything that first century Israel was anticipating. Their culturally shaped expectation, looking for a Messiah that would be a political savior, breaking the bonds of Roman rule, expelling the foreign colonists, and reestablishing Canaan as the promised land. But as Jesus rose from his grave, his resurrection declared that the victory that he had won was far greater than anything that they had anticipated. And he had not merely defeated a political opponent, but he had defeated evil itself, showing the true depths of what he had preached in Nazareth from Isaiah 61, showing that his victory was ultimate showing that this indeed was the year of the Lord's favor. And on this year, all the bonds were broken, and all the blind given sight, and all the powers of evil destroyed for all time. Resurrection of Christ, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the first fruits of the kingdom that he has established, a prefiguring of that day when all who have faith in Him, will be ushered into a kingdom of everlasting life. Death completely destroyed, its sting absolutely removed, and all of the people of God now resurrected from their graves to life with God in a new creation forevermore. And so you see the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It fundamentally changed everything. Not only was the posture of devotion changed from a redemption anticipated to now a redemption accomplished, but the content of that devotion was now exploded as the full extent of Christ's saving work and the implications of that for believers was put on magnificent display. Truly, to be united to a crucified and risen Redeemer was to have a totally new life in Him, a completely new identity, a new citizenship, even of a new and better world. To be united to a Redeemer who'd establish this great kingdom that would be manifest not just in Canaan regained, but in a world regained when he returned, was to put the life of a believer on a wholly new plane. And that's what the apostles were called to preach. As eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ, these were men who were to stand as heralds of this pivotal moment in redemptive history and help the people of God see the heights and the depths and the lengths and the breadths of the saving love of God for sinners and 
to help them understand the massive implications that such a paradigm-shifting redemption would have for their lives. That's why Peter calls himself an apostle there. Why he begins by saying to his readers, remember who I, who I am, readers. I'm an apostle. I'm a, I'm a resurrection man. That's, that's my life. Indeed, that's why he twinned it with that identification servant, wasn't it? Doulos, really. Uh, bond servant, even, even slave. Peter saying to his readers right from the off, when you think about me, you have to understand that I'm not like these false teachers who preach for ulterior motives, satisfying their greed. I am a man whose whole life is bound up, constrained by the message of Jesus Christ risen from the grave. Peter was a man who belonged body and soul to Jesus Christ, his faithful Savior, and his whole life and ministry caught up in simply pointing past himself so that his readers, his hearers, could see the glories of Jesus risen. But it's interesting here, isn't it, that he follows his personal introduction by addressing his readers, stating that they have obtained, he says, a faith of equal standing with ours, that is, with the apostles, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why does he do that? Well, like we said, every introduction frames the terms of the letter. When Peter addresses his audience in 1 Peter chapter 1, as elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, you understand he's, he's setting a framework for helping his readers understand a pilgrim mentality. The society is around them is against them because they are in it, but not of it. They are in reality exiles in a foreign land, allied now to a different king. When Paul addresses his audience in 1 Corinthians as the church of God that is in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, he's reminding a church that is in a quagmire of immorality that they have been set apart by God as His own to live distinctly from the surrounding culture and for His glory. And it's the same thing here. Why does He address them like this? Because He wants to establish in their minds and in their hearts, because He wants to establish in, in our minds and hearts that the faith that they have, the faith that we have through the apostolic preaching is the very same faith as the apostles themselves, and not some deficient faith that needs to be bolstered and advanced through a special kind of new teaching. That's what the false teachers had been saying, wasn't it? They had come into these congregations promoting some kind of higher life theology, False teaching always promotes some kind of higher life theology. It's the hook, isn't it? This idea that the audience they were they are addressing, the, the, the message that they have heard is it's deficient in, in some way. But but these teachers, they have come with the key that is to unlock a whole new sphere of, of blessing. It's what the Judaizers had said in Galatia, saying that their audience had received a deficient gospel, 
from the apostles. And that they had come to let them know of a way to greater blessing, to a, to a higher life, that if only they went through the obedience to the ceremonial law, then they would truly unlock the blessings of God. It's what the more philosophical teachers had said in Colossae, saying that certain rituals and bodily deprivations were required to achieve true enlightenment. The first gospel that had been preached at Colossae, they said, that's, that's not enough. It's deficient. You need to do what we say. And you need to become ascetic. And you need to discipline your bodies and starve yourselves. And you need to go through these rituals and obey these calendars. And then you will be blessed. It's what these teachers that had come into these churches in Asia Minor were promoting too. This idea that through their teaching, a new level of Christian life can be unlocked. This time one in which the requirements of the law fade away. And true Christian liberty can be expressed in the removal of all moral restraint. These false teachers coming in saying the gospel that has been preached in Asia is deficient. And it has led them to a Christ that has kept them in bondage. But they are the men who have come to preach true Christian liberty. To help these poor Christians understand that in Jesus Christ really the law is of no effect. And they can give expression to every desire that they find rising within themselves. But you understand what unites it all. From the legalistic to the antinomian and everything in between is the idea that these poor hearers have been sold a halfway gospel. And it's only through them that they could truly become their highest and best selves. And it's tempting, isn't it? I mean, who of us has not grown frustrated with our progress in the Christian life? Who of us have not felt at times like we have somehow missed something? Maybe especially if you were evangelized through a gospel presentation that told you that coming to Christ would mean all your problems would fall away and that Jesus would rescue you from all your unhappiness. It doesn't take long to realize that plenty of problems remain for the Christian. And that your life is not one of constant mountaintop euphoria. Or you struggle with the sins of those around you as they wound you. And you bear the marks of, of those around you and you wonder if this is, if this is it. Is this really the, the church? I'm surrounded by people who speak carelessly, and I'm surrounded by people that impugn me and attack me, and is this it, really? Is this what I've been brought into? Or maybe, if we're more honest, we struggle with our own indwelling sin and with the self-inflicted wounds that it brings. And we wonder, why on earth are we still struggling with the same things we struggled with since the day we were converted? Have we, have we missed something? Or simply you struggle with life in this fallen world. You, you, you fight depression and anxiety. 
You carry around profound and deep grief over the loss of a loved one, a grief that will never go away. You still battle chronic illness and poor health or whatever it might be. And at all, it is so easy to think that we've missed something, that that there must be something about the gospel we haven't heard, some kind of key that will unlock the fabled victorious Christian life. Peter, here, having tied his whole identity to the gospel of Christ, crucified and risen, looks his readers straight in the eye, as it were, and he says to them, he says to us, listen, what I received from Christ is what you have received from Christ. He says, our faith, it is of an equal standing because you understand it is in no way built on anything that you do, but it is wholly built on what Jesus Christ has done. That's the point he makes at the end of verse 1, isn't it? To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Right? Or if we read it backwards, what have we obtained through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ? It is a faith of equal standing with the apostles. Peter's point is that while he was called to a unique office in the formation of the church, that foundational apostolic office that ushered in the wonders of the new covenant, He was as much as his readers, a sinner in need of grace as they were, and that he was a sinner saved by the same gospel that they had been saved by. Paul famously identified himself in 1 Timothy 1.15 as the chief of sinners. And it's a statement that's been written off by some as as hyperbole. I mean, after all, this this is Paul, an apostle who planted churches throughout the Mediterranean, who obeyed the command of God even when it came at great cost, like the command to return to Jerusalem, even though he knew it would result in his arrest. This is Paul, who is invariably shown as sure-footed in the New Testament, rarely displayed, portrayed as making a, a misstep. And some have said, surely, that that Paul's just making a point. Surely, he didn't really see himself as the greatest of all sinners. But, of course, he did. The pain of the memories of his persecution of the church, never leaving him. The knowledge of how much he had done to persecute Christ and his church, never escaping his memory, his awareness of how much he got wrong when he was so confident, always sitting in his heart as a humbling thorn. But, not that we should get them to argue, but surely Peter has a claim on that title as well. Peter He was so confident as a leader of the apostolic band. Peter, who made the glorious profession of faith at Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 16, that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. But Peter, who just a few verses later is found rebuking Jesus when he said that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. 
Peter demonstrating that he had understood virtually nothing of what Jesus had said on the road from Caesarea Philippi to Jerusalem, and who sought to save Christ by attacking the servant of the high priest and cutting off his ear. Peter, who's confident boast in Luke 22, 33, that he was willing to go with Jesus to prison and to death, turns to Jesus, deny, turns to Peter denying that he had never known Christ when asked by just a servant girl. Peter, who had received the revelation in Acts 10 that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. But Peter, who would then go off with the Judaizers to the point that Paul says in Galatians 2 that he had to oppose Him to His face because he stood condemned. Time and again, Peter sinning against Christ. Peter, time and again, sinning against Christ, not in ignorance as Paul had done, but, but boldly against knowledge. Peter, sinning against Christ, making epic mistakes, sinning spectacularly. But Peter, who knows that his sins are forgiven by the crucifixion and, more importantly, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. That's what he says in 1 Peter 1.3, isn't it? Peter knows that by the great mercy of God, he has been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Here is Peter. Maybe not the chief of sinners, that title claimed by Paul, but a close, close runner-up. If ever there was a man who knew that everything that he was and everything that he had was contingent upon the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, it was surely Peter. Peter who knew how he had sinned. Peter who knew how he had betrayed his Lord. Peter whose heart had been broken time and again as he had been convicted of his sin. But Peter who knew that he had a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter who knew that the message that he preached about the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the foundation and the content of his only hope in life and death. If ever there was a man who could say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. It was Peter. If ever there was a man who could say, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left its bitter, deep, hateful, crimson stain, but Jesus has washed it white as snow. It was Peter. If ever there was a man who knew that the whole content of who he was was pinned not to his own actions, but simply to the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, it was Peter. And so here in this introduction, he turns to his readers and he says to them, beloved, we are saved by the same gospel because we are saved by the same Savior. You see, it is a misstatement to say that we are saved by faith. Christian, you are not saved by faith. You are saved by Christ in whom you have faith. 
Now, some will say that that's pedantic, but really it's an important nuance. To say that we are saved by faith is to say that there is something that we contribute and that that faith uh, can get stronger or, or weaker. To say that we are saved by faith, it leaves a crack in the door for a false teacher to come through and tell you 10 easy steps to stronger faith in Jesus Christ and therefore greater blessing. But as Sinclair Ferguson said, True faith takes its character and quality from its object. Its strength, therefore, depends on the character of Christ. Even those of us who have weak faith have the same strong Christ as others. That's Peter's point. Wrapped up in the light, thing is wrapped up in Christ. Everything is wrapped up in the life of Christ. Everything is wrapped up in the death of Christ, but ultimately everything is wrapped up in the resurrection of Christ. Everything that the Christian is and has and hopes for focused on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's why Peter says here that his readers have obtained a faith of equal standing with the apostles. That phrase, obtained a faith, uh, showing that he's not referring to, to their belief in Christ, their trust in Christ, but rather to what R.C. Sproul called a body of doctrine. That's what faith means there. He's making a statement about the equal privileges that Peter the Apostle and his readers have before God in Christ, that the very riches of the gospel obtained by the apostles is the very same thing that every believer obtains through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. False teachers tell their hearers that what they have received in the gospel is deficient in some way, and they have come with a key to unlock a whole new sphere of blessing. But Peter is saying here that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the sphere of blessing, because it's in Him that all of our sins are washed away, and it's in Him that we are given the greatest privilege that we could ever hope for, reconciliation with God. Whoever has heard the gospel call, whoever has cast themselves in faithful dependence upon Jesus Christ has, 1 Peter 1.3, by the great mercy of God, been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. You see, that is the sum and substance of the Christian gospel. It is what is so supremely good about the good news that we sinners through the resurrection of Jesus Christ have the death of our sin exchanged for life in His glorious kingdom now and forevermore. That's it. Nothing to be added to it. Any addition, only a subtraction. Jesus Christ, His death and His resurrection is the beating heart of our faith. It is the sun around which we orbit, the central point to which and from which everything in our life finds its point of reference. If what false teachers promote, this higher life theology, it might sound good. It might be attractive to us, but in the end, it is always hollow because it takes us away from Christ the one in whom alone the greatest blessings are to be found. Let us pray.
Almighty God, our Father in heaven, keep us near the cross. Oh Lord, we pray that you would keep us near the empty tomb. We pray that you would help us to see that all the riches of the gospel are found in Jesus, that he is indeed the yea and the amen. And anyone who comes along and says that there is something that can or should be added to him is a liar, an antichrist, and that we help us to strengthen ourselves against them that we might hold more tightly to Jesus. Oh Lord, we know that there are many, even in our own day, who would seek to rob Christ of His glory by telling us that they have the keys. But we pray as we go through Second Peter we, that You would strengthen us, that You would fill our hearts with a greater understanding than ever of all that our Lord achieved in His death and in His resurrection, and that we would be anchored to Him, and that we would be faithful to Him. For it's in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen.